morning, diners, food lovers, and go-nowhere people out there. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we are. Perhaps maybe, maybe some of you are bold enough to go out. We're, we're, we're too frightened. But, but, but fortunately, we have lots of good people coming over the airwaves to us. Yeah, so, and um, lots of good food around. I mean, oh, absolutely. Have probably the well, I know we have probably the fattest larder that we've had in years because of all the um, people got nothing to do other than send us samples for, <laughs> for us to eat. And and just just to wow you guys who think they know how to cook, guess guess who just cooked two beef tongues. <laughs> And we're going to, and we're, big, big, big and we're going to have them for several days. But in the me, in the meantime, we have no, we have a very interesting subject, a very interesting character, Jerry Umansky. And what's what's this thing called? Bowl lovers? No, it, it's Koji. Oh, oh, the Koji, Koji alchemy. Oh, yeah. It's a fascinating book. Absolutely, absolutely um, amazing. What 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 you what you can and can't ferment. So, so here's Jerry to tell us all about that. We're going to be talking to Jeremy Umansky, who's like, um, I was going to say notorious. <laughs> I ran from it. So you are probably one of the, the leading spokespersons in, in the United States, if not the world, of Koji. Uh, you and Rich She wrote a book called Koji Alchemy, uh, subtitled, Rediscovering the Magic of Mold-Based Fermentation. Um, I started, before we started recording, I started to explain to you that probably my worst subject in high school was chemistry. Um, I did my <laughs> science project on um, conditions conducive to rusting, and I used 100 nails in different environments and different coatings, and I ended up with a hundred rusty nails. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a success. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> so, but at any rate, um, this book is really viewed as the current Bible for this this uh, fermentation. That's, I mean, all the chefs that I talk to are like enchanted with this whole thing. I mean, why all of a sudden is everybody caught up with Koji? Uh, well, first off, I think you using the word enchanted is the perfect way to describe um, how people more or less fall in love with this, this organism. It's a microorganism. It's a mold. I know. Uh, yeah, um, and, and that kind of parlays into why we called the book Koji Alchemy. Yeah. Um, it has this magical mystique about it that no matter how little or how much you understand the science, every time you use it, it's just mind-boggling amazing what, what happens with it. So, um, you know, why now are chefs and, and, you know, home culinarians and people of all, all walks just suddenly falling for it. Well, first off, most of the Western world were, were a few thousand years late to the party. Yeah. <laughs> um, because if you look at cuisines all over Asia and Southeast Asia, going from India to Japan, and even up to, you know, as far north as the Russian border, 
and then down all through the Philippines. Um, this this mold and and very similar relatives of it have been used as the bedrock of cuisines for millennia at this point. If we look at um, you know the most well known food made with with this mold, soy sauce. Uh, how important it is as a base ingredient in so many Asian cuisines and in so many dishes, it just goes to show how important it is. So, you know, I'm not exactly sure why chefs in the West and culinarians in the West, like now has been the moment for this. Um, But uh, nonetheless, it's a fantastic ingredient and it's better late to the party than never arriving. Now, now, now how, how did you get to know so much about it? Um, you know, uh, a lot prior to my working specifically with this mold and its and its relatives, um, I had already, you know, had a ten or almost fifteen year deep career working with uh, charcuterie and cheese making and fermentation uh, of all other sorts. Um, you, we might mention, by the way, that you you have a, an award-winning um, Beard Foundation nominated for best restaurant restaurant in Cleveland called Larder. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, I just thought we should mention that in case somebody wants to come and see you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we'll gladly feed anybody that walks in the door as long as as long as they're nice and kind. We uh, <laughs> we welcome everybody. So the um, question is, are you open? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, we, you know, we decided to um, design the restaurant after a delicatessen model you would have found 150 years ago, 120 years ago, um, you know, in in New York, New England, and and even now to this day in a lot lot of um, uh, Europe. So the majority of our business before um, COVID was to-go food. Uh, So it was very easy for us to kind of make a pivot. So you know, we have our dining room closed. We we have had some, you know, some other other pretty heavy growing pains. We did have to lay off some employees, and we were closed for a few weeks in in the early spring. Um, but but things have have leveled off for us pretty well, and and we're hanging in there. So good, um, good. that's good news. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, now is not necessarily time to worry about making money per se in the restaurant industry. It's about you know, covering, covering, yeah, covering your bills and and just making sure you can make some money in the future. So that's mm-hmm. uh, we're we're and supporting we're your hiring. employees. Yeah, that's another one, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, so we um, we we work in in and Mortar is um, was two years old in in April of this year. So you know, I, I had built a. a fairly long, you know, I'm I'm in my late 30s. So, you know, 15 years I've been working with fermented foods in various ways and in various parts of the United States and studying in in Europe for a little bit. And when someone here uh, had asked me to make miso, um, I figured, oh, it's a fermented food. I could go ahead and just make it, right? You know, mix some beans and some salt and I'd have, have some miso um, and that's when I was introduced to this this koji mold, um, and I learned I would actually have to have to grow the mold and mix it in, and uh, you know once you get past that initial step, the the fermentation of it is is pretty straightforward, akin to 
making pickles or sauerkraut or any of these other foods. But uh, it did take quite a bit of research. And, and fortunately enough, uh, there were some, some great books written in English um, dealing with miso making and tempeh making, which is a, another food that's, right. that's made with a, a, a related mold in terms of what it does uh, that were easy to access. Um, but to really get into the nuts and bolts of how this worked, uh, there was a few instances where Rich and I had reached out to some Japanese colleagues we knew um, who would actually translate some academic papers for us um, in English so we could really understand the workings uh. of this more. Um, uh. So for, for a while, there was quite a bit of a struggle to kind of truly understand what was going on with this. Mm-hmm. Well, you set up a whole lab. There are different ways of setting up these labs. I mean, chefs have taken me in to show me their their um, uh, their growing system, and um, I mean they're very intent on this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trying different things, lots of experimentation, trying growing, trying growing koji on something aside from the traditional items. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, as as much as I would love to have a laboratory in the true sense, you know, to to conduct scientific analysis on these foods and see how they're working and why they're working, um, I I don't have the resources to. Uh, you know, those, those lab setups can be very, very expensive, um, and they can require a lot of resources to run and upkeep and manage the equipment and everything. So, from the beginning, you know, our lab looks much like your grandparents' root cellar uh, or their <laughs> artery. Uh, you know, we have, we have wooden barrels. We, you know, uh, we have very simple, approachable means for growing this mold and then using it for fermentation. And part of that is because as much as we can use science and our current understanding to optimize the use of this mold in food, um, the traditional methods work great and have been working for thousands of years. Um, so, you know, it is fun to experiment and to optimize and to, to kind of grow your horizons. But at a certain point, you realize, too, that the traditional methods can work in all sorts of new world experimentation. Um, you know, so so like I said, our, our lab uh, looks very similar to, to – uh, you know, the, the root cellar or the larder of, of someone, you know, going back a, a couple of generations. Yeah, I wonder how you pass health department inspections because, I mean, in New York City had a really bad problem with um, health inspectors who didn't understand sous vide and thought that it was going to poison everybody. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. You know, we – it's a – you know, I, I, I don't even like to use the word battle. We're in constant conversation with <laughs> our, the, the jurisdictions because, you know, for so long, chefs have felt that it's, it's them versus the health department. And yeah, that's, that's, that's not the case. Like, we all have the same end, end goal. We all want to see food produced safely um, for people to enjoy. So, you know, we try to have as open conversations as we can with them. Um, on top of that, you know, we've, we've gone the extra step. We've worked with food safety consultants uh, who have helped us design these, 
these very intensive food safety plans that log different types of information to, for accountability uh, that we use, and, and you know, we we're able to keep track of things um, according to what the the health laws are here. So, um, you know, it, it takes a considerable amount of extra work. Uh, I, I think the next step for, for chefs is to uh, – a lot of these food safety laws were designed for industrial food production. Uh, so for, you know, the ketchup factory or the ice cream factory, that sort of thing. Uh, so they aren't so reflective of how chefs and actually cook and how restaurants actually operate. So – Hopefully, you know, I, I work with an association called the Fermentation Association, and it is an industry trade group. And one of their goals is to find, uh, you know, this a separate but equal set of regulation that would allow chefs to work within these food safety laws um, in, in a way that isn't too burdensome on them. Because well, when, you, when you take... Yeah. That's an yeah, interesting I mean, idea. Yeah, the, you know, when you take um, these laws that were designed for a completely different set of food production and plop them in another um, area of food production, you know, there's some things that are lost in translation or don't hold up or aren't the same concerns. So there's a lot about that that we just want to see reformed and catered to these individual styles of food production uh, versus one, to- one set. I have yeah, to go ahead. constantly um, uh, explain to Peter, which I'm, I'm the one in error, I suppose, um, that he can't just hang a duck up in our basement. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean Roman said I could do that. Yeah, Roman you know that, said that. Cause, yeah, cause you he, know Michael. He's from, Cle- he's from Cleveland, so what the hell would he know? Huh? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Hey, listen, there's there's no there's nothing greater than some perfectly ripe fowl. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's but just how wonderful. do you select? You have a, a chapter here in uh, selecting your spores or something like that. How do you know if you're getting the right ones? Well, so the wonderful thing about this is um, koji is, you, you know, in, in, it's the perfect blending of old world and new world. Uh, because, you know, if you go into the miso shops in Japan, they're filled with these humongous wood and barrels, they call them kiyokis. And in some cases, these barrels are hundreds of years old. Wow. You know, there's beautiful cedar lining the walls and same with a, a soy, you know, a, a, a smaller batch soy sauce producer and so on. Um, you know, so a lot of the foods produced with koji are produced using these very, very ancient traditional methods. But as our understanding of microbiology went forward, the koji spore producers, the people that produce what is akin to a seed, realize that they need to produce that part of it in, in you know, a, a, a laboratory setting that akin to what you would find in a hospital. Sanitation-wise. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, they use clean rooms with HEPA filters, and the employees And so wear... that's what you get. I mean, you start out with, with something that comes from a lab like that, so you already know it's, it's guaranteed to be clean and not exactly. poisonous. Exactly. And there's, there's several layers. Japan is the largest producer of these spores, 
And there's several layers of regulation that detail how they have to be produced and what kind of testing has to be done on them to see if there's contamination of potentially something that's bad and this sort of thing. So all of that is taken care of for you before it even arrives to your doorstep. Yeah, so I mean, it still proves my point is you can't just take a duck and hang it up in our damp, horrible 150-year-old basement. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, you know, listen, there's there's always a risk with anything we do with food production. Huh. So, you know, keep in mind, too, every place that any of us works, whether it's your basement or my restaurant or you know, someplace halfway around the globe, we all have different environments. And in those environments, not only is the weather different and the temperature different and the language and the food different, but the microbes that live in the air or on surfaces just all around you are different. So we can't necessarily blanket say like, oh, you can't do this all the time because in some parts of the world you could very well do it and it'd be perfectly safe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's really important for anybody producing food and when they're working any type of fermentation or meat aging or that sort of thing, that they take into account these factors of where they are, what could potentially be around them and where the ingredients they're working with are coming from. You know, if, if you have... Yeah, we visited, in- um, we visited the king of Culatello in, uh, in Frioli. Was it Frioli, rather? In in, in, in No, in uh, Lazio. Not Lazio. Lazio. Well, anyhow, I mean, basically, there the rooms with these things. Hang thousands of these hams hanging from with the windows all open so that some, the, the particular breeze could hit these things. Right. You, you know, <laughs> but it, it didn't seem like a hospital or lab controlled in any sense whatsoever. No, no. But, you know, that that just goes to show the differences between, you know, use one word fermentation for, for kind of all of these things. Uh-huh. But each each one is kind of a different process and involves uh-huh. different microbes. And some don't even really involve microbes in a very overt manner either. Um, some, they play more of an underlying role as opposed to a star role. So, you know, it, it really depends where you are and what you're doing, what you're working with. So why do you want to Koji? I mean, why do you, what do you get when you work with Koji? Yeah, and, and that's the question, right? Like, why, why learn how to grow a mold or work with it if, if it wouldn't do something spectacular? And, and what Koji does is fantastic. So all any ingredient you work with your, in your kitchen is made up of a combination of, of varying amounts of fats and proteins and starches. And what Koji does is Koji breaks those three things down into the base components that make them up. So in the case of starches, starches are many, many, um, they're, they're very long molecules made up of simple sugars. So when Koji grows on rice, for example, on a starchy substrate, and after 48 hours you eat some of that Koji, it is no longer going to taste like white rice. It is going to taste like flowers and honey. Uh, it actually breaks apart the starches into the simple sugars. 
And for proteins, proteins are made up of amino acids, which our tongue registers as very savory and unctuous and tasty compounds. So it creates those. And out of fats, while it doesn't break down a lot of fats, that isn't the primary goal of its enzymatic activity, these, these, the way that it breaks things down, uh, these fats, when they're broken down, uh, create very aromatic compounds, which lend to the flavor of our food compared to the taste we get from our tongue. So it does all of these wonderful things in a very short period of time. We kind of liken it, Rich and I often discuss, and he has this great analogy for it. If a lot of times you marinate a, a piece of meat, right, whether you're doing barbecue in the south of the United States uh, or you're doing Peking duck in China, there's some sort of marination, right? You put soy sauce on there or tomato paste and sugar or something that goes on the meat before you cook it to enhance its flavors. Right. What right. Koji exactly. – yeah, what, what Koji can do that's fantastic is let's say we make this traditional product called amazake or shio koji, which are kind of like porridges made from the molded rice or barley. If we put those onto a piece of meat or even a vegetable, it will create a marinade from that piece of meat or vegetable, and it will make it a more tasty version of itself. So instead of adding other ingredients to kind of highlight and showcase the ingredient, you can use the core ingredient to do that all by itself. Wow. And uh, that's what's so magnificent about it. Now, I, I was interested. You, men you mentioned the Philippines as being a place where they do that. Now, most of the other places are not very warm, but the, the Philippines are distinctly tropical. Does yes, it work yes. Better? Does it work better there, or does it work well, in a different way? You know, that's, that's where being in the modern world, and I think kind of going back to the first question, why now? So this, this mold evolved, we believe, somewhere. A lot of the archaeological evidence produced points to uh, uh, kind of the, not northern China per se, but the northern half of China. And then it kind of looks like it moved down to the Korean Peninsula, and then its relatives were used in the Philippines and Malaysia and that area, and then eventually made its way to Japan. And most of the, that part of the world is either subtropical or tropical. Um, this mold in the wild, wild prefers that climate. Now, the great thing is any of us can easily recreate that climate in our own kitchens. Um, you know, at the restaurant, we use a, because we produce a lot of it, we, we use a commercial dehydrator. It's about the size of a large miniature fridge um, that we can hold a very specific temperature in. We typically, depending on what we're doing, we're looking plus or minus 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and then we use uh, different types of trays, either metal or plastic, and plastic wrap to control the amount of humidity in each tray that we're growing this in. Uh, and we, we try to maintain roughly about 90% relative humidity. So, you know, imagine a really hot and muggy day outside, one that you could just slice the air with your, with your hand. 
Uh, that's what Koji likes. But like I said, with some very simple means, it's very easy to recreate that environment almost anywhere in the world. Yeah, we were were very interested to find out. We talked to somebody from Tamari, one of the people who make soy sauce. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But they make all their soy sauce in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You you know, there's there's people doing it all over the world now. And, uh, you know, Tamari itself is a fascinating product because Tamari is a byproduct of making miso. Yes. When uh-huh. you make miso, uh, some of the liquid seeps out of it, and that liquid that seeps out, it, it'll pool on the top of the miso in the barrels. That is the tamari, um, oh, okay. and it's 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 really fantastic. And if you get true tamari from an artisanal producer, it is very very expensive. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if if you made um, Let's see. I just put up. A, it's a, a two-gallon vessel, uh, a barrel of uh, some miso or an amino paste the other day, and if out of that, and this this thing probably weighs when I moved it, it was including the weight of the barrel about fifty-five pounds. Okay. Um, I will be lucky if I get. I don't know, two hundred fifty milliliters of tamari off of that. Mm. So it, it's a, it, it, not a lot is produced. Now, in industrial settings, they have ways of speeding up the process and they can make their miso a little wetter to encourage more liquid to come off and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, but good traditionally produced tamari is a very, very rare and expensive condiment. In fact, I'd be surprised if much of the traditional artisanal stuff even leaves Japan. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. You know, much like the good balsamic here in the U.S., oh, yeah. there, is no, there is no such thing. No, I know. Yeah, they shouldn't be allowed to sell it. But no, I know, I know we've, had, we've had soy sauce of a very, very, very fine quality. In, in, it was a place in London that we went to. to yeah. Oh, yeah. Five restaurants, and, and they, everything they had was, was authentic. Including, yeah. including 150 different kinds of sake. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. And, and yeah. I mean, did you notice a big difference between that and the little packet you get in, in quick service? Oh, good grief. Chinese yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd say so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's 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 drastically different, you know. It's it's pretty pretty fantastic to, to see that range of products. Well, listen. When when I buy after I buy this book and read it, what what am I going to be equipped to do? Well, yeah, um, it does so many things. I mean, well, I read just something just, about just just a little bit. I'm just trying to change the direction. Three D printing. What's all that about? There was all kinds of stuff that that yeah. you said Koji did. Yeah, you know, one of one of the big things are uh, a goal for Rich and I with this book is. There's so many, you know, we use the term cookbook, and they all have recipes in them, which is great, but a recipe is, is very rigid. It's very constricting, um, and if you don't have the skill level of the person who made the recipe, it's not going to come out the way they, they intended it for that recipe to come out. On top of that, 
some recipes, a lot of recipes call for very specific ingredients. And if you're someone that's new to cooking or even someone that's been cooking for a long time and you don't know what an ingredient is or you can't source it in your area, then a lot of people feel, well, I I can't do this recipe. It's not going to come out the same way. So one of the big things we set out to do with this book was to keep it focused more on methods and techniques. Um, Basically, we want people to be able to have a general understanding with this and be able to create their own recipes and be able to do whatever they can envision with their culinary mind. So whether you decide you want to make your own version of an amino sauce like soy sauce or make something like an amino paste um, uh, like a miso, you know, we give people the outlying framework of how this is done, and we tell them, you know, you should have this much salt or this much protein, but we don't specify what that protein would be. You know, in the case of an amino paste, if you wanted to use bacon instead of soybeans, with the way we design book to read and to educate people, you could easily interchange in either one of those and hopefully get the desired results you're after. So part of it is we, our goal is we wanted to change how people looked at the act of cooking, especially at home and in restaurants. Um, but as far as what you could make, I mean, the sky is the limit. You know, how creative are you or how traditional do you want to be? Uh, you could try to recreate the most traditionally made, you know, product that's made with koji um, uh, that you've ever experienced, or you could attempt to make the most experimental thing ever. Um, But the idea was to give people the skill set for the underlying framework of being able to do that. Well, it certainly is an amazing, amazing book, and it's an amazing microorganism <laughs> I, I guess I mean, I'm having a, a little bit of trouble with microorganisms with all this virus stuff going around you know sure. getting my head around the idea of you know what it wants to eat and things like that you know? yeah you, you know and, and we actually <laughs> devote a whole section in the book to mentally and psychologically preparing yourself to work with mold um, because, you know, like you just brought up, like, you know. Yeah, because people this, have a different idea about it, yeah. Yeah, and, and a lot of us, our experience with molds, uh, sure. we either have to call the contractor to replace the drywall <laughs> in our house, or it's growing on, on, you know, some leftovers we forgot about. We don't yeah. have necessarily positive associations with it. Exactly. So we, we actually have a section in the book that kind of talks about this. And, and our goal was to kind of, as you read that section, our, our intention was, was for it to feel like us and other people that work with these molds are right there with you, saying uh-huh. when we first started working with it, we weren't sure because of, of this reason and that reason. But bear with us. Here's what you look for. Here's the good things. And this is why it's good. And and this is why you're going to be safe and okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, it it can be a bit to wrap your head around, Um, you know, but even for those of us in the West, 
if we really think about how something like a Stilton is produced yeah, or <laughs> cultured butter, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, a lot of of cultures throughout Asia, if if they thought, you know, they they couldn't for a very long time imagine the concept of taking the lactic fluids, right, the the lactation from a bovine animal, from a cow or a sheep or whatever, <laughs> and salting it and fermenting it and forming it and then letting mold grow on it, like to them that. <laughs> That's as equally off-putting or confusing um, as how we view some of their workings with mold. So, you know, when we when we kind of break down some foods we're familiar with and we enjoy and we understand, even on a on a very basic level, um, it makes sense that you could comfortably do this and not injure yourself or you know poison anybody. Well, you do a, a fine job of this, Jeremy. Um, yeah, Jeremy, I can hardly wait for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we're, I mean, you, you do give a sense of you're, you're on our side and you're a friend explaining something that, that happens in nature to us, you know. I mean, that's yeah. the, the general, what I get. Um, I, I, you know, I think the anthropomorphic stuff has me, gets me upset. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, and we wanted to keep a lot of the science aspect of the book as relatable as possible mm-hmm. um, because there's there's a lot going on there. And, and that part of cooking and creating food is so important. Um, you know, some of it we learned through uh, re- repetitive action and intuition, right? A chef can step away from a sizzling hot pan and, and they hear a change in how something's frying in a pan and they know it's time to turn the meat over and yeah. walk back to it. You know, some, some things like that, but understanding how you could control the temperature in that pan and why cooking in one fat versus another fat would be more advantageous and, and maybe work fast or produce a more delicious result understanding the science in a practical way we thought was very important. So our, our goal was to keep it as approachable and understandable as possible. Well, I think you, you, it's going to become a, a really prominent on an enduring uh, reference book for uh, chefs and cooks alike. Well, thank Eaters, you. Too. So, boy, it was really fun talking to you, Jeremy. Well, and the both of you too. I, I've I've loved your show for a long time. Oh, well, thank you. So, anyhow, again, listeners, it's uh, well, we Koji you. Alchemy, and it is it's magic, <laughs> isn't it? And don't it forget is. the rest, Don't forget the restaurant in Cleveland. That's Larder. Right. Larder Delicatessen, and, and you know, at at Larder, you know, we're. We are a Eastern European delicatessen with with Jewish deli inspiration, and and everything from our rye bread to our pastrami to our stone ground mustard um, to our barrel pickles we make we we use this molding uh, across the board, and um, you know it it makes things more delicious. So it's it's really really fun and fantastic to work with. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
Welcome back. Um, you, you've probably got the general idea now that um, the world of grocery shopping is totally different. And you're going to be able to spend a lot of time uh, ordering online instead of going out to the store. And I don't think it's going to revert to the way it used to be. So it's good to pay you know? attention to all these products that you can order online. Yeah, you're not, you're not shut out because these are these are absolutely wonderful, top-quality products that you, that you need in cooking just about everything. So, we're going to be uh, talking to uh, Joanne Lucina, who has this organization, this company called Olive Oil Lovers. And she is an olive oil lover, and she knows everything there is to know about olive oil. And you can get almost any kind of olive oil and any from any part of the world, uh, just from her site. But let's let her tell us about it. Joanne Lucina, um, you, you have so much information about something I love. We'll see how much we can cover in this segment. Um, you're a CEO of uh, Olive Oil Lovers. Um, which is a business, right? Yes. Um, it's an online um, e-commerce business selling nothing but uh, great quality extra virgin olive oil. Yes. Um, I, I was really impressed by um, your, your lineup for all the, the um, olive oils you handle. You must handle all the olive oils in the whole world. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> close, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got my hands quite literally in um, all areas of the world, um, connected to many, many farmers who are producing excellent quality um, extra virgin olive oils. Um, you know, all, all over the world. Yeah. Now, um, like offhand, like how many do you have? Oh, right now, I mean, we're always kind of expanding our options. Um, You know, as of today, I work uh, with about 42 producers um, in regions mostly from the Mediterranean, uh, so Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, France, and I work with um, a few out of California as well. Um, So um, that's... And we, we offer a really great broad range of oils from different regions, and each, of course, each region has its own, each country and each region within those countries have their own um, unique flavor profiles based on the native cultivars, olive cultivars of those regions. So we really do have something for everyone in our selection. Yeah, I mean, you, I, first of all, I mean, olive oil is probably one of the oldest <laughs> products that we use still today. Isn't yeah. It? It, 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 it is. I how old it is. I mean, they probably found jugs with traces of olive oil. Oh, thousands back. of years old. Yeah, uh, you know, I was living on the island of Crete uh, for a couple of you years. You lived in Crete? I did, I did, and I, I, I'm lucky that I get to go back often uh, as well. We're very, uh, as a company, tied to to Greece, um, so that's kind of that's where I fell in love with olive oil too. So I'm very, very connected to to that island, and it's also kind of considered in some ways the birthplace of olive oil. Um, you know, there's 
um, there was the Minoan uh, culture living on Crete, and, and they were, you know, trading um, gigantic um, clay jugs of olive oil around the Mediterranean. Um, so it's definitely, definitely been around. That's how they got such tiny waste. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how they just live forever over there. It's <laughs> their secret, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we actually have uh, interacted with um, uh, Cretans for a, a long time. <laughs> um, oh, fantastic. But, yeah, and so, um, yeah, it, and, and it's one of my favorite olive oils, by the way, although I don't know how... It plays out on an international stage, put up against Spanish and Italian. But I, I, it's a, it's a particular taste, I think. No. Yeah, um, I was I was just having this conversation yesterday um, with a team, you know, t- talking about flavor profiles of different oils from different areas, and um, I have been. Um, you know, doing tastings and selling olive oil for well over a decade now. And I can, I can say that consumers, American consumers at least, um, really prefer the flavor of Greek olive oil. Most of Greek olive oil comes from one variety called Koronaki. Now, other regions, especially other countries, especially Italy, for instance, have well over, you know, hundreds of olive varieties that they make olive oil from, whereas Greece predominantly produces oil from and exports oil from the Koronaki variety. And um, so it's pretty consistent in its flavor profile. If you, if you have a Greek oil, they kind of all have a consistent profile. And um, it's something very appealing to, to a lot of um, consumers, and I really prefer it as well. Chefs really love it um, because it's a very... Um, kind of a, what we call a medium fruity oil. Uh, you know, some oils can be really bitter, pungent, and robust, and peppery, which are fantastic, um, but you can't always use those oils for anything and everything. Um, whereas a Koronaki has a really wonderful balance of, you know, some herbaceous grassy notes, as well as some, you know, fruit-forward notes, um, you know, green apple, um, artichoke, um, sweet almond. It just has a really, really nice profile that you can truly kind of use for anything and everything in your kitchen. I always say if you're going to have one oil uh, to have a Greek Koroniki in your kitchen. It's also um, really affordable as well. It's what I call a a great value oil. Um, It's not as expensive to produce as... Um, you know, some of the high-end Italian oils. Um, well, now, I, I've and, actually been to an olive oil tasting or two. Um, explain how this differs um, in terms of, like, wine tasting. Explain to our listeners what you do with an olive oil tasting. So uh, we often kind of use that parallel uh, when talking about tasting olive oil, that there's a lot of parallels um, between wine and olive oil uh, in terms of the way to think about it when tasting. Um, So, you know, every single olive oil you'll ever taste will have a flavor profile all its own, just like wine, and it's very much attributed to... um, the variety of olive that um, the oil was made from, and the variety is very much tied to the region and the country that it's from. 
um, other contributing factors, as in with wine as well, is how you're handling, you know, it's a, it's a fresh product, it's a fruit. Grape is a fruit, olives are a fruit. Um, so it's very seasonal. Um, and, um, you know, depending on how well you're maintaining the, the olive trees and how soon you're picking the olives in the harvest, how soon those olives are transported to the mill to be crushed, the type of equipment that you're using in your mill, um, you know, all these factors. There's so many details. Like we, we went, we visited a, um, a Spanish um, producer in southern, southeastern Western Spain, rabbit, and mm-hmm. um, they, they, what do you call that? I mean, they don't crush it; they let it crush itself. What do you call that? Well, they they call it lacrima. They call it lacrima, and uh, it, it's lacrima. It's un, it's unusual to an area of Spain called Murcia, I think, and we 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 actually found out about it from a guy who runs a business called. Uh, Wines of Spain. He's great in, wines. He's in Spain, Seattle. Right? Great wines of Spain, and he he handled this one olive oil product, which, as as Anne explained, they they put the olives, they leave the olives on the tree as long as they can, so they right so they ripen, 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 and then they put oh. big rocks on top of the stone. Yeah, that's and I mean, allow the weight of the stone to to force the oil out of the olives. Oh, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> like lessons in patience. So a lesson in patience. Yeah, you, have to be, you have to be a bit patient. <laughs> I have to admit that probably would not produce an extra virgin olive oil that would that would qualify <laughs> as extra virgin. It, but, it was actually know, good. I, it was actually very it was good olive actually. oil. There, and and there, this is a thing, um, you know, that I know France does this. There are, you know, they southern um, France produces a product where they purposefully or they intentionally pick the olives very, very ripe. Right. Um, and it's, it's like called, you know, olive oil noir or something like that. And yeah. now the, 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 the flavor and chemical parameters do not qualify it as extra virgin because it's just the, the, fruit, the, the fruit is too ripe. So there's certain parameters that are going to be out of spec when you test that oil. That being said, there are consumers who like that taste. Um, now it just wouldn't be called you. You couldn't call it extra virgin, but you know it's 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 a it's a product all its own. So I didn't real you know I didn't surely yeah. There's probably people doing this in Spain and maybe even Greece as well. That's a, it's a really specialized product, um, you know, when you really let the olives really, really, really ripen. Um, because the key to get a really good quality extra virgin is to pick when the olives are still quite green. You want them to be green or just beginning to turn purple. So that's at yeah, the beginning of the harvest That's Greek season. olive oil is like that, isn't it, more green? Um, it's Well, if, if you're talking about color, um, the color of an olive oil has nothing to do with, with quality. Um, that's why the professional tasters taste out of blue tasting glasses so that you're not influenced by the color. Oh, that's because there's some, Yeah, uh, Greek olive oil from Koronaki, just like uh, maybe a Piquol oil from Spain, 
because of that variety of olive, and this is kind of getting back to your question about wine, you know, how some certain varieties of wine are going to be different in color. They, you do note the color when you're looking at a glass of wine and swirling it around in your glass. Um, you know, certain varieties of olives will just produce more emerald green oils. And then certain, some, um, some uh, varieties will be very light yellow, and it's just – it's a variety of olive. So you're never going to get, like, an emerald green, uh, you know, Cobranzosa, for instance, from Portugal, which is really, really light, light, light yellow. It's almost shockingly light yellow, but it's fantastic. Okay, okay. Let's talk about it's these surprises. So I, I want to point out something. Um, make sure everybody knows your um, your website because it is – full of information, and it's fun to read. It's oliveoillovers.com, right? Yep. So oliveoillovers.com is, um, of course, where you can go to purchase olive oil. Um, we right now we just ship um, in the you know to the United States. We have free shipping to uh, all across the United States, so you can order one bottle or twenty bottles. Um, we also sell to wholesale customers as well. So if you have a shop. Um, or a restaurant, um, you know, you can also um, purchase from us and um, as well. So, um, and well, we, let me we offer, point out that you have a picture of the bottle, which actually I think is very helpful on this website for each of these wines. And you have the name, um, and you, you have some other kind of detailed information, and the, the um, the general price, I'm assuming, is the general retail price. Uh, a place to buy it if you want to buy it, or in the future if you want to remember to, to buy it. Then you have a description of it. And then you have a listing of international awards. And then you have, which I, I thought that the comments, the reviews were fascinating to read. I mean, they're yeah. really all over the place, weren't they? Yeah. I, 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 have a que- I have a question. Do, mm-hmm. does, does the oil come to you already bottled? Yes. Yeah. So with all this, all this oil is is packed right at the source um, by our producers, okay. and and then uh, we ship it directly to our door. So really, this is. There's nobody in between us and the producer themselves. We import the product directly. I communicate directly with our producers every day. I have very, very good close relationships with them. I have, you know, I know each and every one of them personally uh, have visited their farms and their estates and walked through their groves with them and heard their stories and eaten with them and, um, you know, so I, every oil that is on our website is really a, it's a, it's an oil personally chosen by myself, uh, really. So I can speak about every single oil and about every person behind every oil that we have on our website, which is very important to me. So this is, you know, this really is my, you know, passion project. It was, you know, something I wanted to do many years ago as I was falling in love with olive oil and meeting all these wonderful, wonderful families and producers making exquisite oils. It's it's their life. It's their blood. You know, it's it's, it's their yeah, name it on this bottle and it means everything to them. And, um, you know, I really wanted to 
to to be able to to bring these oils directly into people's homes. So yes, on our website, I mean you you can buy the product right on our website and it'll and we'll ship it straight to your door. And we try and offer as much information as we can about the products because obviously we are not a physical store. So um you know, we do list um the the varieties of olives that the that the oil's made from, the region that it's from, the harvest date, very important. It's everything when it comes to olive oil because again it's a fruit juice. It's made from the olive fruit. So it doesn't unlike wine, this is very important, it does not get better over time. Um, right. wine it's, it's can age and better, become yeah. You know, you want to save it. Do not save your olive oil. Eat it. Right. Eat it liberally. Use it up. Buy another bottle. Think of it as fruit juice. <laughs> you know, you're you're not going to let it just sit around and save it for a special occasion, which a lot of people do. <laughs> They're like, oh, oh I want no. a really special bottle of well, oil. I want to oh, save no. it. No, 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 no. Well, just please enjoy hold, hold it on. as it's precious. Uh, he sent us four on, bottles. Hold on, just hold on, just a, mm-hmm. just a second. Talk, talked a little bit about, about Spanish olive oil that, strangely enough, takes a dear tour through Tuscany on, on the way to where it's going. Uh, yeah. So, so what a lot you, of you don't handle that kind, I guess. No, no, no. Uh, our, I mean, this, our products are bottled right from the source. You know, we work with you know small small producers. Um, you know, which is which is why our product is you know, more expensive than what you may buy in the supermarket. Um, you know, the oil you buy well, for five nights. I didn't see anything you know, outrageous, though. Of the ones that you sent, I, I looked up your tasting notes from your website on the four bottles you sent, uh, and um, I, I was surprised that they were as reasonably priced as, as they are. Well, I, it's, yes, I think, it's all relative. You know, some people think that it's expensive and some, you know, it, it is more expensive than, you know, a soup, a bottle you might buy off the shelf in the supermarket, you know, it's like not a, like a buying balsamico, though. I mean, <laughs> balsamico, yeah. what, teeny tiny bottles for $130, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, to, to answer your question about the whole, you know, Spain, Italy, in tobacco, I mean it's 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 um, Spain is the largest producer of olive oil. They produce three times the amount of oil than Italy or Greece. So a lot of people yeah. don't realize this. Spain is a yeah. major, major, major player. They drive the market prices. You know, if Spain well, they has produce a bad, the most olives, I mean, not just the oil, but the most olives. They grow olives worth the name. I mean, yeah. if you've been to Spain, you probably saw, you know, when you're driving around, you know, well, southern you Spain, everywhere. there's just olives is for miles and miles as far as the eye can see. I mean, it's 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 quite incredible. Um, so because they're such large producers, the problem is that Italy, you know, has the association with olive oil. They've, you know, the Italians are fantastic at marketing, and the fan, and the Italians are great <laughs> at a lot of things. They pro, they produce truly some amazing 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 authentic olive oils um you know that I, I i don't like it when people kind of say oh italian oil is all fake no 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 no, no. i mean you know you have to kind of know what what you're looking at and what you're looking for um you know there's 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 
counterfeit in every industry on the planet. Um, but what, what happens, you know, is that Italy is the largest exporter of olive oil. So they, they need to meet this demand for olive oil. Um, they need to export more olive oil than they produce. In fact, it's said that they only produce enough olive oil for for themselves to consume. So where are they going to get all this olive oil? You know, they, they have to go to other countries to, to source. Um, you know, and there's nothing illegal about this or anything, you know, but the problem is that it's easy to not be so transparent about what you're putting in the bottle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now today it's more common. Now you, you have to put the country of origin on the label. But, you know, that you'll see a lot of labels in supermarkets selling for a few dollars a bottle that look very Italian. They have an Italian-sounding name, maybe even an Italian flag on the, on the front. Yeah. And then you look at the back, and product of origin says, uh, you know, Spain, Argentina, Tunisia, Morocco. Yeah, right. You know, just like all these different countries, you know, basically this oil could have come from anywhere. Um, so... But and the biggest scandal was not so much the that even as it was where they were um, doing extra virgin olive oil that was not extra virgin. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's that's the bigger the bigger scandal, um, and that really. You know, people always ask me, well, how do I know if my olive oil is the real thing? Right. And the re- really, there's a few really obvious indicators. If you're buying a bottle of oil for, you know, three ninety nine for a half <laughs> bottle of oil, especially if it says it's organic, <laughs> you, you kind of, is it really, though? <laughs> you know, it, it's just too cheap to be true. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of costs that go into producing uh, a really high quality oil. Uh, you know, the, the, the trees themselves need human labor. You, you know, you need to, you know, people go into the olive groves and they pick the olives, you know, with, you know, the small handheld mechanical sh- machinery, you know, and they go tree by tree by tree. And then they have to drag the olives in the nets and load them into trucks and take those trucks to the mill. And, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, it's there's a lot of work that goes goes into um into that and then you have to bottle and you have to brand and you have to do some marketing and you have to do all these things so when i see a bottle of extra virgin olive oil selling for you know four dollars a bottle on a retail shop <laughs> you know I, i'm like there's that's in the, no way no way that's not the real thing like it can't be it's impossible but you know i'm a little more privy to costs and market prices and things like that or so i would just be wary when you're buying a very inexpensive oil um but tell us you know, about some of the major differences, like when you pick these four regions for us to sample. We have mm-hmm. um, Crete, which has the nice minimum art on the bottle, yeah. and, and we have um, mm-hmm. Spain, and we mm-hmm. have Portugal. I never actually even think of Portuguese all the world, to tell you the truth. I don't know why. Um, and and uh, what was the other one? And Italy. Um Yep, yeah. uh, and, but not not to Tuscan, right? Right, to right. It it's, uh, it's from Puglia, so Puglia. Puglia, is, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Puglia is actually um, 
the largest uh, production exactly. region in in Italy. And ha- have you been to Puglia? By chance? Yeah, I have. Yeah. They, Before yeah, it was popular years ago. They, they, they okay. Also, in Puglia, they also say they they grow a lot of grapes, but they make rotten wine. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I think uh, they, they probably have they, improved their reputation in many areas since then in, in food. and But it, it's a major agricultural region. When you're driving yeah. through Puglia, you, you see, oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it's you see gorgeous. fields of fennel. Some, some parts of it smell like garlic. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's just an, it's a garden. I'd call it like the garden state of Italy. It's it's just um, really a beautiful region, and um, so they do grow a lot of olives there. And um, so so yeah, so the the De Carlo Classico, the sample that I sent you, is is one of my personal favorites. Actually, um, one, it's a really great value. Italian oil can be very yeah, expensive again too. because. Yeah. Yeah, production costs are quite high. So this is a really approachable oil. For me, it's a very affordable Italian oil that is – now, if you want to be impressed by color, again, color has nothing to do with quality, but it's made from Coratina olives, and it's a very, very bright, bright, just emerald green, like this deep green color. It's beautiful to look at, and it's beautiful to smell – and it has just a wonderful flavor. It's almost like you can taste the the fields of of you know fennel and and herbs that you know that grow in um, in Puglia. It's um, even almost has like a, a minty undertone to it. It's it's just a it's a really great oil, and it's really really high in polyphenols, uh, which are the antioxidants found in olive oil. You know that's what makes it a great superfood and makes your skin look great and prevents Alzheimer's and heart disease and all these wonderful things that you read about with olive oil. Those are attributed by the polyphenols, and certain varieties. Again, getting back to the varieties of olives, um, what makes them so unique is the that some are just naturally produce more antioxidants than others. And this is very popular with our customers, too. They, we actually, you can sort on our website, you can sort by um, number of polyphenols. Um, not all of our producers test for this, but a lot of them do. And when they, because it's not a requirement for quality, it's not a quality parameter. Um, so not all producers test for this, but those who do, we do publish that information on our website. Um, and so you can, you can shop by polyphenol levels on our website if you want an oil that's really high in antioxidants. Um, so Coratina, for instance, is very high. Um, so it has a lot of health benefits, but it's polyphenols are also going to make an oil very, it's very much correlated to that spiciness, the spicy, bitter taste in olive oil. Um, yeah. That's a good thing. That's a sign of freshness. That's a sign of a lot of antioxidants. When you get that sort of astringency on the palate and, and you know, a tingling in the back of your throat and, um, you know, all that are those fun polyphenols at work. And so, you know, if you cough a little bit when you just try your olive oil, that <laughs> it's, it's really good for you. It's a lot of antioxidants. So so the DiCarlo Classico that I sent you, um, you know, that's a really wonderful oil um, for that reason. Uh, and it's one of my personal favorites, too, um, from Puglia. Maybe we'll so, use a little bit on We have swordfish for dinner tonight. Maybe I'll sprinkle a little... Oh, it's already as good as the fish. 
There you go. Yeah, yeah. you know, it would be fun to even try these different oils on, on the fish to see which one, you know, exactly. you think complements it the most. Um, so I notice you don't have any we, – we encountered somebody who um, was producing olive oil in, in the middle of um, Israel. But I never thought that you'd grow olive oil, produce olive oil in Israel. Yeah, um, there's there's olive oil from from Israel, from Syria, from you know, you know that whole area produces olive oil. Now they're not quite as on top of their um, you know producing quality oil so much um, as other regions, which is why we we don't have any oils. I I, I hope to in the future, but I just haven't tried yet a really, you know, one that sort of meets my quality standards um, from these well, areas. It's, a, it's, um, such a, it's such a such a messed up area politically and militarily. I mean, you would, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'd be interested in buying anything that's produced in, in Syria or Lebanon just now. It's, well, it's, yeah, and then there's, there's the conflict there, of course, as well. That's what means, I mean, that's what I'm talking know. about. Yeah. Now, how yeah. does so, California fit into your vision? There's a whole uh, you know, Cal- on hmm? Yeah, Cal- California um, is a small player in the global market. It only produces about 1% of the, the global um, oil supply, so it's very, very small. Um, and, you know, there's a very high demand in the United States for you know, oil produced in the United States. The, the problem is, is that we don't produce enough by far to right. meet the demand. So, you know, while it's really great to, you know, eat more locally, you know, we, we you know, there's, there's not enough. You know, we have to kind of keep the supply going and, and import from other, other areas. But California um, has really come a long way in quality. Um, and there are certain varieties that, you know, that um, have just been found to take well to the soil and conditions in California. So like Koronaki, Greek Koronaki, that variety, they do grow in California. Um, Spanish varieties, Arbequina, Arbosana, um, these are kind of the most common varieties they grow really well they do high density farming there which is where you kind of have the machines go over on on top of the trees and um so you have to plant the trees really close together and they can only grow so tall and that kind of thing so you have to have the right type of olive tree to for that type of farming there's so So, much joey and we're never going to get to all of this I really want the people, <laughs> our listeners, to to spend time on your website. It's it's amazing the information yeah. on there. You know what? We also have um, you know a great channel on YouTube. Uh, we have Olive Oil Lovers, uh, our channel Olive Oil Lovers on YouTube, where we have produced a lot of content, um, a lot of educational content, where we talk about the health benefits of olive oil. We talk about things to look for when buying olive oil. We also have some fantastic interviews um, when we have visited our producers, where we walk through their. Yeah, you know who them. else does that? It's, um, Forever Cheese does that too, and it's very effective marketing. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, people really want to see where their product comes from, and it's really, it's really neat to see, you know, the people and place where this product comes from, and, and you know, especially in industries like olive oil, where you read all the time that your olive oil might be fake, you kind of, you know, you want to feel more of a connection to, you know, to the person and place. Uh, where this came from. So we really try to do that for our, you know, for our customers. Well, Joanna, I'm, there's one question I, I can't not ask. Is why were you living in Crete? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't go there to um, get into the olive oil business. That wasn't, um, I actually was in a place in my life where I, um, just wanted to travel for a bit. I was in my 20s and um, thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I went there to te- take an English teacher trainer course and then I, my plan was to go on and, you know, travel around for a year or two and, you know, be able to have some income and teach English and just to, you know, explore the world a little bit. And um, I was between careers, so it just worked. But then I, I got to create and I just got <laughs> uh I, I started working at the school where I was where I was teaching and I stayed, you know, kept staying in one month and another month and another month and um started learning more and more and more about about olive oil and um was eating more and more of it, was living amongst the trees and you know, it was sounds like it was fun. <laughs> Yeah, I think oh, my life was sort of fun. shifted into olive oil, and yeah, I mean. And so there um, you are. Well, yeah. um, Joanne, is is your um, did I do your name right? Is it is it Italian or is it um, uh, Greek? It's Czech, actually. <laughs> it's Czech. So it's okay. not, well, it's yeah, not it's Lucina, then, huh? Lucina. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's Joanne. Lucina from uh, Olive Oil Lovers, plural, dot com. And listeners, I mean, it's a whole new world. And what other ingredient do you need for most of the cooking you're doing? Besides from olive oil, the answer undoubtedly is tomatoes. Right. And, and tomatoes, that in this case, are, are made in very large quantities and sun-dried and all kinds of good stuff like that. It's Mooney Farms, and we're going to be talking to Mary Mooney. And if Mooney does not sound like an Italian name, that's that's true. Um, but the name of the company is Bella Sun 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 Bella Sun, like in Sun Luci. Let's listen to the story of these tomatoes. Well, we're so happy to be able to talk to Mary Mooney of, of Mooney Farm. Um, there is a plural, but uh, farms is plural, and um, it's the product is. Um, uh, tell me the full name of the product. Well, it's it's Bella Sanlucci, which means beautiful sunlight in okay. Italian. And, and, and you were Irish, but you do have some Mediterranean <laughs> well, blood. Yeah, a little of everything. So my grandfather. Uh, Freitas was full Portuguese, and actually the recipe for our sun-dried tomatoes was actually found in an old cookbook that he actually penned himself with little notes, and he would make sun-dried tomatoes in the summer uh, with all the extra tomatoes, just like, of course, Italy does, and and the Mediterranean, Uh and we would uh, eat them. 
when we were young, we grew up in Sonoma, and it was one of the many things we enjoyed on a nice summer night. We would eat our sun-dried tomatoes and olive oil, and we had big dinners uh, at big, long tables under the stars before it was in vogue. Um, right. It sounds okay. like an Italian family, actually. Well, you know, we have. You're, uh, you're, you're so a my, California girl, right? That's right. Grew up in Sonoma, and uh, my uh, father actually grew up in San Francisco, and uh, and then the other half was Irish, and that's where the good nature and the gift of gab comes from. <laughs> So you put the gab. You know, this gift of gab is no joke because we we cover this um, food on the edge uh, in Galway every year. Uh-huh. And I yeah. hope it's this year everything else has been canceled. But anyhow, we get the best interviews because the Irish are such great storytellers. But you can't they get are. a word in edgeways. Yep. <laughs> That's okay. That's just, just like we you, have Mary so much to say. We have so much to say. <laughs> so, so from this, from your grandfather's making the um, sun-dried tomatoes, you build a company. Well, you know, it's our story is a great American story. My mother was widowed. My father passed away at fifty-six, and she decided she would move to Gridley in the Valley of uh, California and be a farmer. And uh, unfortunately, did it kind of right at the eighties um, when farming really was in trouble. And so we needed to make some extra money to save the ranch. And in the beginning, um, we went out and sold fruit on the side of the road. Now, her family was from Minnesota, and they, out of the Depression, would can everything. So we really started by hand-filling, hand-capping, and making all these batches of kiwi jam. We had a kiwi ranch. And we actually saved the ranch we needed thirty thousand dollars in thirty days to save the ranch from the sheriff's sale. Oh no! And we actually saved the ranch. And I looked at my mother and said, "Well, I think we have a company. I think we're going to make jam." So we were um, already somewhat in the food manufacturing in this little jam kitchen, and we were going to farmers markets and we started making sun-dried tomatoes. And before we knew it. There were people lined up 20 deep in Marin <laughs> at the Civic Center to buy these sun-dried tomatoes. Wow. And I said, well, from my marketing perspective, it looks like we've really got something here. I think we better make more sun-dried tomatoes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we never looked back. We saved the ranch. The four of us became a uh, company of making the sun-dried tomatoes and olive oil, which at first we hand-stuffed every jar. And poured uh-huh. hot oil and had capped every jar. And okay. um, then I just started going to stores and showing it to them. And they'd say, absolutely, these are fabulous. They are fabulous, by the way. Yes, sweetheart. Is, it, is, this, is this the place that does the tomato jerky as well? well yes. That's, that's, that is, that is our, uh, that's our newest product. Uh-huh, and so okay. what's interesting about the company is the next generation has come along, my son's. And they were interested in uh, lots of other ideas. So they like to just eat the tomatoes plain. And, you know, they said, wouldn't it be fun if these tomatoes that are so good for you, um, most people don't even know they're high in protein and high in fiber, what if they were flavored? And I said, well, that's interesting. We could, we, I think we could do that. So first we just smoked them on hickory smoke and we made smoked. 
And then I said, well, you know, maybe something hot would be fun. So we put sriracha on them. And believe me, those are hot. And then we did a teriyaki cracked pepper. (laughs) And then what I love about the jerky is, you know, you've noticed a lot of the plant-based movements are a combination of things. And they're all put together to try to taste like something. But ours are just simply a tomato. You know, this is a hot food trend that, that they uh, they pulled off from the fancy fuchsia, winter fancy fuchsia, is plants as plants. Well, and we were named one of the top ten trends at fancy food uh, uh-huh. to watch because this jerky, when you eat it, you think you're eating jerky. You get the texture, you get the chewiness, you get the big, bold flavor, but you get all the health benefits of a tomato. You know, I'm glad to know that the tomatoes are high in protein because I eat a lot of tomatoes. She's a total tomato freak, Mary. I'm, I'm a nutcase on tomatoes. Well, <laughs> and you know, I knew about the lycopene, obviously, and I know a lot of people talk about the Mediterranean diet, but really until we started making this jerky, I actually didn't realize how much protein and fiber was in a tomato. Yeah, I didn't realize there's that much protein, but uh, fiber, yes. And, but of course, protein. a lot of potassium also. So it's a healthy yeah. snack. It's delicious. It's plant-based. Um, and lucky for you, I know where you're based. And um, Giant Eagle was the first to actually bring it in. So all yeah, of your no listeners kidding. local there will be able to find it. Yeah. Now, they, go, they, they come in the nice, the most elegant package, the last shipment we just got. Oh, oh no, you, you just repackaged didn't you? You just redesigned well, your package. Well, the juicy package is really new. You know, it's really a cleaner look. Um, uh-huh. We still have our traditional three-ounce, just plain, sun-dried tomato, you know, halves or julienne cut, which I think most people use those for cooking. I know I do. Um, mm-hmm. But the new, the new jerky, we call it, which is really a flavored sun-dried tomato, um, you know, that we really wanted people to see that it was something new and something really quite different than just a sun-dried tomato. So we, we went out of our way to make sure the white packaging was clean and fresh. Uh-huh. Well, they're very good on the you know, To tell you the truth, most jerky that comes across our doorstep um, tastes all the same. <laughs> well, Except for the yeah. mushroom jerky, which tastes like dirt. <laughs> Now, I, I hope those people aren't listening. Well, I wasn't <laughs> going to say that, you know. But, you know, I have a rule here. If it no, doesn't it, taste fantastic, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't no, matter box, what you're trying to in. achieve, you know. Mary, Mary the, the box it comes in, is that a trade display box? Or? Well, that is just a, that is just a nice I mean, box. it's really we elegant. Really use, it, it is. We use that for promotion. But Got we it, do okay. have a... Um, we do have a display shipper that actually stores can stack up that look much like what you were given, and okay. that is available to stores to, I think, again, kind of capture the freshness of a tomato and also emphasize the big, bold flavor you get. And, uh, I mean, how many products total do you have? Well, of course, the original is a sun-dried tomato and olive oil, which is... Well, I have that. I mean, and, you know, before you- we started talking we are i already used to stock those well and i appreciate that because that helped <laughs> just because it was good very important 
But um, that is how we started. And, you know, something special about Mooney Farms is when we started, we followed our great-grandfather's recipe, and he only used olive oil. And so many brands out there use canola oil and other lesser. And we thought it was important to use really high-quality ingredients. So we only use olive oil. And uh, we have the halves and the julienne cut. Then we uh, made a sun-dried tomato pesto and a bruschetta that um, is uh, pine nuts and walnuts and delicious and easy to use. And then we have the full line, of course, of just plain sun-dried tomatoes. Again, I love those for cooking, especially yeah. in the winter when you can't get a fresh tomato. Well, you know, I actually use them in, um, in salads when you can't get a fresh tomato. Right. And they're great. And it works. Cooking. They add, in fact, if I see one more zucchini in this kitchen, we have a whole uh, company <laughs> garden. And, of course, they all come at once, and some of them are the size of small cars. Uh, <laughs> we, have a, we have a corporate chef on staff here, and he said, you know what? I'm going to fix this zucchini with a whole bunch of sun-dried tomatoes, and by the time I'm done, you're going to tell me it's the best thing you ever had. So uh, they do help quite a bit. You know, who was it? In Wisconsin, we interviewed somebody, and they said... In Minnesota. Minnesota. Minnesota, in summertime, if, if, never leave your car windows open because you come back and find a, a carload of zucchini. <laughs> well, you know, I told you my mother's from Minnesota. And when right, I grew right. up... What's that? Yeah, so, yeah, but they have a huge crop too. I was right. very, we were for lucky. We got some kind of a zucchini borer in our neighborhood. Nobody could, could make oh. Roger zucchini anymore. Oh my God! Well, <laughs> she would can everything. She she can make pickles out of zucchini. Uh, you yeah, name it, she can make too. it. So. Yeah, my mother did that too. My mother used to actually pollinate this with a paintbrush, the zucchini. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was a real serious gardener. And um, yeah. the, she would pick only the male flowers, the blossoms, and to, to cook. Because they had no further usefulness, right? <laughs> yeah, right? Well, you know, we have a ton of fabulous recipes on the website. And we also have a recipe contest. And it's coming right. to an end, I think, in about, oh, I don't know, just the end of this month. But um, a lot of people enter at the very end. You know, sometimes when you enter in the beginning, we have to go back and look at them all again. But uh, uh-huh. I think the prize is $2,500. We've had, um, I think it's about our 10th year. And we have, a, we have an honorable mention every month. And then you get a big basket of gourmet products uh, sent to your doorstep. That's very clever. It's fun, and you know what? A lot of amazing recipes, if you look, will feature your picture, your name. We've even had our winning recipes twice featured in Better Homes and Gardens cookbook. Really? (laughs) The last two years in a row. These are fantastic chefs, and they come up with the most amazing sun-dried tomato recipes. So lots of great recipes on the website if you want to stick to the Mediterranean diet. And also uh-huh. enter. You still got a couple days. Well, you've you got a perfect you, marketing gene, Mary. You, you have a perfect marketing gene. <laughs> I know. And I, I said, if it's if it's zucchini, I'm going to know it's you. <laughs> oh dear. 
So anyhow, so um, tell us the details. Website is what? So it's bellasamucci.com. You better spell and, that. Yeah, it's loaded with recipes and health benefits or, you know, uh, recipe contests, anything you'd want to know, more than you'd ever want to know about a sun-dried tomato. Lots of uh, <laughs> great video content, very uh, fast, quick, 30-second spots. In fact, our chef, this is a little off topic, but in these times, we felt it was important to make something that could help you get through quarantine. So our chef showed you how to make limoncello from scratch. Oh, wow. And that will be up shortly. And uh, so lots of fantastic video content on YouTube and and on the website. And, uh, of course, the jerky is the newest. And we have new flavors coming soon. So wow. uh, that that will be that will be uh, probably fall or after the first of the year when we can kind of get back out there again and and uh, oh boy. visit with people. I pray. Yeah, I know. I pray. Yeah, I know. Meanwhile, yeah, I think you should. I think you should buy a vineyard next. Yeah. You, well, <laughs> I got to tell you. So our family likes to eat. I have a cousin who owns a cheese factory in Petaluma. And I have another oh. cousin who has a winery in Napa. So when oh, we all go. get together, it's a very good party. I'm sure. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, you have to come out. We could take you for a tour. We'll drink wine, eat tomatoes, and uh, eat yeah. cheese. Well, we, we've been out to, uh, for wine tours. We were in the Paso Robles. Uh-huh. We were in, um, where's the place where Doris Day has the hotel? Carmel. 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 Let's see. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, we're way further north than that. Yeah, you gotta and, come and up north. You got to come further up. No, I yeah. almost lost I, Anne. I, I, I lost Anne in the Sonoma Market Square. Oh. <laughs> yeah. She 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 wandered she wandered off and she wasn't where I was supposed to meet her, and I didn't. I thought I wouldn't find and her. And I again. didn't have my cell phone. Yeah, she oh, didn't have a funny. cell phone. Now, yes. see, if that was me, you'd have found me over at the French Bakery, and I, I'd have just waited there. <laughs> So we grew up eating uh, Sonoma Jack cheese and uh, drinking, actually, for many years. Of course, Sebastiani Winery was very important to Sonoma and uh, really had a charmed, charmed childhood. Growing up in Sonoma was really fabulous. That was beautiful. It's really lovely. But, you know, Gridley and and Chico here, it's hot. But uh, the produce and what grows here is just phenomenal. When you drive through this country and you see the thousands of acres of walnuts and almonds and rice. It's, almonds, yeah, particularly it's, almonds. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing what goes on here, that the farmers are just fantastic, and it's a wonderful environment, and we've really enjoyed being here very much. It, well, yeah, I mean, it is a wonderful part of the, the country, and um, it's not surprising that there's a huge Italian population because it's very much like parts of Italy. It, it really is, you know. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's times you can be in Tuscany, and when they have a heat wave, it feels just like uh, this part of California. Yeah, which they've been having more of. I mean, that and Peter's from England, and uh, you know, they have heat waves now. Right. Nobody has right. air conditioning, you know. Uh, well, at least I have that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying that they never needed it in, in right. the U.K. before. Right, right. So well, it's a whole new world. We'll see what happens when we come out of this um, quarantine. Sure. 
Well, if you're just any any home, final word you'd like to say about uh, well, yes, Bella Salucci? You can, you can you can sit at home, and you can order our products uh, through our website, and you can enjoy jerky and sit in the privacy of your safe home and and enjoy uh, Mediterranean cuisine all day. Sounds good to me, Mary. <laughs> Mary Mooney, uh, thank you so much for taking this time to talk to us. Oh, you're very welcome. Enjoyed it very much. You you. Okay, we were a long time about it today. We hope. Yeah, it's the longest time about it. Today. We, 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 we hope you enjoyed and found it interesting, and you'll join us again, same time, same place next week. And until then, bye.